Welcome to London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. What do a Dutch Jewish fixer, a gender fluid Manchu princess, and a lusty Nazi masseur have in common? At first glance, very little, but Ian Baruma has chosen to feature the three of them as the central characters in his latest book, The Collaborators Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. It's published by Penguin Press and brings Ian Baruma, a professor at Bard College and a regular contributor to Harper's and The New Yorker, to our show now. Welcome. You. you can hear me. Yes, I can hear you. Good, good. Although you do sound like you're in a, a bad, I don't know, in a tunnel or something. But uh, but I can hear you fine. Okay. You open your book by saying that, I'm quoting, on the face of it, the three main characters in your book have very little in common, uh, aside from the fact that each committed wartime acts that led some to see them as national heroes, but others as, as awful villains? Yes, I'm not sure they're national heroes. Some of them, uh, after the war, were, Oops. were villains in the sense that all three certainly cooperated with very villainous uh, politics and, and regimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but with with know, Germans and Japanese forces during World War II. Not just the Japanese forces, it was the, the uh, Kawashima Yoshiko, the Manchu princess, who mm-hmm. was, um, edu- was partly, who grew up in Japan, the daughter of an ultra-Japanese ultra-nationalist, cooperated with the Japanese secret police um, in, in the she, um She was pretty culpable, but with no, you never know what is true, and that is what all three have in common. Well, you say that you were determined to treat these three people with fairness, even compassion. Why? Weren't all three con artists and collaborators who engaged in some pretty awful behavior? Much my intention to, uh, to show any particular warmth, but I do believe when you write about people who t- who do bad things, who make the wrong decisions, you have to try and understand them as human beings, and because human, uh, all human beings are fallible, and we're having real problems with this connection. You can't hear me. No, but you keep on breaking up. Actually, ah, no, that was probably because I was hesitating. And um, all human beings tempted to do bad things. So when you write about those people, you have to do it with an understanding, not just to condemn them. Did you learn about them uh, first when you were studying and working in the Netherlands, Japan, Hong Kong, and London? Yes, in these various places, it was. The British historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who actually put me onto Himmler's master, uh, Felix Kirsten. Kawaki mm. um, Yoshiko is a legendary figure in Japan, and I knew people who knew her. That, that was something that was in my head for a long time. And uh, Weinreb, the Hasidic con man, um, is a very famous, was, uh, young people don't really know about him anymore, but was a famous figure in the 70s when I was a student, because he became a darling of the counter-establishment left. Well, to to describe them a little further, Felix Kersen was a Finnish masseur to Heinrich Himmler and others in the Nazi elite. Yoshiko Kawashima was a Manchu princess who spied for the Japanese, and Friedrich Weinreb was a fixer whose fellow Jews paid him to secure reprieves from deportation to concentration camps. 
but of course, uh, he betrayed betrayed them to the German secret police. Well, he was only he pretended to be a fix. Yeah. Uh, that they want, they like to be in the vicinity of power and think of themselves big shots. Weinrep was not a big shot at all, but he pretended that he was in close touch with powerful people and had these lists that people in exchange for pay. But you, to say. but it was all it was all phony. It was all a game he was playing. But you also write, I'm quoting: "We should reserve hasty moral judgment." None of the three was utterly depraved. They were all too human, especially in their frailties. But a lot of people suffered as a result of what they did. That is absolutely true. Well, I I would assume that many people who do bad things are just all too human, especially in their frailties. Oops, we're losing you again want to write about these people, you have to recognize that uh, frailties are human. So it's not that I, I don't see uh, the suffering that they caused. It's that um, in, in deciding to write about these, these characters, you want to make them interesting and you want to understand them and you want to understand the period. Simply voicing condemnation is not a very interesting literary enterprise. Well, okay, let's look at uh, them briefly. Kawashima Yoshiko was a cross-dressing daughter of a Manchu prince who'd been displaced during uh, uh, the 1911 revolution. Was cross-dressing more acceptable at the time than it might be in Florida today? Uh, No, I don't think so. I think she was considered an eccentric uh, at the time um, as well. She may not have been condemned in the same way that right-wing Republicans might do so. Do. It wasn't really an issue at the time. Hmm. She spied for the Japanese secret police in China, and they described her as a heroic combination of Matahari and Joan of Arc. Yes, and this was a, she was very much conniving in her own uh, legend management. Um, what they liked about her was that they, in their propaganda, invasion of China and the war in Asia was... Uh, supposed to be a liberation of Asia and uh, kicking out the Western imperialists and so on, even though the Chinese were the victims of this and, and millions of Chinese consequences. But they liked the idea of a Chinese princess or a Manchu princess being on the Japanese side. So they built her up as this heroine in the Japanese media, full of daring do and private armies and so on, much of which was as fictional um, as Weinreb's lists. Well, her story is rather sad. She'd been given as a young girl by her parents to a well-connected Japanese adoptive father who most likely raped and abused her. And you say that led Yoshiko to decide to bid farewell to womanhood. So that's why she cut her hair short and began wearing men's clothing and uniforms? Well, that's one of the explanations. Uh, it's something that uh, she said, that she didn't trust men, and um, but um, men led freer and more better lives than women, and so she wanted to be a man. But she said other things, too. Sometimes she dressed up as a woman. So it's ultimately, I think, a mystery like so much else in the lives of these characters. And there is not one easy explanation, I don't think. 
At her 1945 trial in China, wasn't the list of allegations against her rather long? that was woven around her during the, the war as evidence. So they would take uh, movies made about her and, and not in a fictional evidence against her. So uh, it was a very peculiar trial. It was indeed, in, in many ways, a sad. They said she had formed her own army to conquer Chinese territories in Manchuria. She'd plotted the invasion of China. She helped to start the Battle of Shanghai. She passed along Chinese military secrets. She spread Japanese propaganda. And she sought to revive the Qing dynasty. Wow. Well, the last point, uh, that was certainly one of the reasons that she became a collaborator in, in that eventful Manchus who had, after all, it was the Manchus who ruled China during the Qing dynasty. And... Uh, were brought down uh, in the revolution uh, in 1911 when China became a republic. Manchu aristocrats, there was a dream that somehow together with the Japanese or with Japanese help, they could revive the Qing dynasty. So that she was probably uh, part of that romantic uh, notion. Much of the other things that were held against her in her trial uh, were patent nonsense. Or at least there's a grain of truth in all those allegations, but only a grain. She didn't help to start the Battle of Shanghai? <laughs> I don't think she had the authority to do any such thing. <laughs> she may have done the Japanese bidding to... Uh, uh, to help things along. I'm sorry? Oh, you, you broke up again. She might have done the Japanese bidding to help things along. To help things along uh, and 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 so on, she certainly played a role. But the idea that she uh, instigated uh, the bat eye or anything of the sort is, of course, nonsense. Uh, Friedrich Weinrib was a Hasidic Jew. You said in Holland. Why was he regarded by his supporters as the Dutch Dreyfus? Well, what happened is that he probably betrayed fellow Jews during the war. But one always has to realize that as a Jew himself, he was always uh, under great uh, great threat. He could death camps himself. Nonetheless, he did betray people. He, he, he was a fraudster. And after the war in 1945, he was tried hmm. a special court for defrauding fellow Jews, went to prison, was supported by some people, including some people in the United States, was that this was an unfair trial. He was a scapegoat. He was, as, as he put it, the Dutch Dreyfus. Now, this disappeared for a long time, this defense. People hadn't heard of him for a long time until the 1960s, when uh, for the first time, people began to pay attention to the Holocaust in general, but also in Holland. And a book came out called... Um, uh, the Ondergang, the, the, the downfall about the Holocaust in the Netherlands. Corey, who wrote this book, wrote a chapter where he brought up the story of Weinreb and called him uh, a scapegoat, and that the, he was made a scapegoat for the Dutch authorities, the bureaucrats, the policemen, and so on, who cooperated with the Germans 
during the war, or at least look the other way. And so he became a kind of hero of the anti-establishment left, who saw him as a sort of passive resistor playing games with the establishment uh, in the way that was then fashionable. But didn't one Nazi officer later recall that Weinreb, quote, betrayed many families, he told us everything, and really did his best? Oops, we're losing you again. One always has to be careful, of course, with the uh, what whatever former Nazis say. It's not entirely dependable uh, evidence. When 1970s and a debate between often between the right and the left over what Wein had rarely done or not done. There was a committee of serious historians who really went into his case. And they came up with a lot of evidence which showed that he was guilty. Well, didn't he pretend to be a doctor and administer, you write, quote, thorough, often painful gynecological examinations involving a lot of probing and useless injections? Uh, he that was, was another one of his fantasies, yes. He pretended he'd even forged a letter um, which uh, showed that he'd um, finished his medical studies in Vienna, all of which was nonsense. And he did, uh, he, was a, he was perverse in that he did pretend to be a doctor who had to um, subject women to medical examinations before they were supposedly put on trains to safety uh, to Switzerland and Portugal and so on. Sexual abuse, no? Sexual abuse, absolutely. Didn't he admit, in fact, that he was not an ordinary man intellectually or sexually? Well, I think he, yes, he did say that, but I think he, he meant it almost as a form of boasting. Um, he was an immigrant, secular Jewish family, um, and I think his, his orthodoxy uh, and later his life as a, as a guru who explained uh, to wealthy and well-connected ladies uh, the meaning of life by a Kabbalistic reading of the Bible. Um, he thought that cleverer and superior to everybody else. He basically thought everybody was a fool. And so his games were um, a way for himself to prove his uh, superiority. And um, I think he, when he said, I'm not an ordinary man, I think he meant that um, as a boast. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org, is Ian Baruma, whose latest book is The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. Uh, it is published by Penguin Press. Um, the third person we are talking about is Felix Kirsten, how did he become Himmler's personal masseur? Well, again, um, everything that he said about his life has to be taken with a grain of salt. So we never know quite what is true. But um, he was in Weimar, Berlin in the 1920s when there was a lot of um, wellness and, and, and mumbo jumbo, guru-like mumbo jumbo, Hinduism, Buddhism, yoga, and so on around. And he claimed and the fact that he says he was Tibetan is already um, grounds for suspicion uh, because whenever people talk about Oriental bumbo jumbo, they quickly come up with Tibetans. Many 
massaged. And he became the masseur to uh, rich and well-connected people all over Europe, royalty, aristocrats, um, big industrialists, and so on, many of whom later, uh, in Germany at least, Ooh, we're having real problems with this connection. Um, should we uh, try to reconnect, Reggie? I guess we could try. We're, well, yeah. Why don't we just uh, take a, a mini a minute's break and okay. try to reconnect the phone? Because right now, uh, it's it's hard to understand some of the things you're trying to say, and this is all really complex stuff. So. Uh, let me remind my listeners that my guest is Ian Baruma, who um, is uh, the regu- well. He is a regular contributor to Harper's and the New Yorker, uh, and uh, he's a professor at Bard College. And his book is "The Collaborators: Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II," published by Penguin Press. Reggie, are we? Do you think we got a better connection this Not time? Yet. Okay, we're still trying. It's a, a complicated story because these people did bad things, but uh, Mr. Baruma also uh, is rather sympathetic to them in some ways, and that's what I want to get into in a little while. We, we're trying to reconnect, and... Oh, I have to just keep on babbling. Okay, well, uh, while while Reggie uh, tries to make the connection, a reminder, of course, that we're in the midst of fundraising here at WBAI. And um, at this time, just for, uh, for a few days, we're offering a series of collections that contains archive material on flash drives called The Best of BAI. Um, There are three different flash drives. One is Best of BAI Shows and Favorite Hosts. Another is Best of BAI Classic Past Historical Truths. And the third is Best of BAI Current Events and Consequences. And they are yours. Well, one of them will be yours, the one that you choose, for a pledge of $99. If you go to... Give to WBAI.org or give us a call at 212-209-2950. Remember that over the years, BAI Radio has won awards for news, arts, and music programs. So we're offering this audio collection that features the best of BAI. Uh, and we're, are we okay, Reggie? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, uh we do try our best. Sometimes uh, there are problems, as we are facing right now. Uh, but uh, that, that is not unusual, as um, <laughs> the governor of Florida just discovered when he tried, <laughs> tried to do something and uh, uh, announce his, his, uh, okay. that he was running for president. Yes, right. Okay, let's try it again. And Ian needs to unmute. Unmute Ian. Make sure you unmute so we can hear you. Are you there, the Ian? Yep, I'm here. Oh, okay. the what a better now? connection. Oh, boy. Okay. All, All right. right. Now, I'm now using my iPhone and, and instead of a, a computer, so d- d- maybe that's better. It, well, the, this is perfect sound. So, okay. 
I'm very pleased. We were talking about Felix Kersen. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, of the three people you've profiled, he comes off best, but only because, as you write, he cannot be held responsible for mass murder. He, no, but he can be held responsible for, for making uh, uh, the, the life of a mass murderer more comfortable. Yeah, he treated him with stomach pains and other ailments and often gave him massages so Himmler could start his day refreshed. And Himmler called him That's right. his magic Buddha? Mm-hmm. That's right. Himmler suffered from terrible stomach cramps. Like, apparently many people in despotic courts suffer from this um, in an atmosphere where you're always w- watchful that you might, somebody might plunge a dagger in your back. So he had these terrible pains. Kerstin was the only one who could relieve his pain once in a while, which gave him a certain amount of uh, power over Himmler. And, and so he became his confidant. Um, and uh, this, of course, was resented by other people in Himmler's entourage, all of whom were fighting to be uh, influ- to, to have influence. Uh, the astrologer, the doctors, um, other uh, members of the SS and so on. So Kerstin was in a very peculiar position. Well, he always had something to eat when others were going hungry. He had grand real estate holdings. And uh, he had help that was imported to one of his homes from the nearby Ravensbrück concentration camp. So yes, how innocent could he have been under those circumstances? Well, not not particularly innocent at all. Um, I mean, he was not, as as you said, he was not a mass murderer, but he was certainly implicated. I think Kerstin was one of those people uh, he always said he wasn't interested in politics, uh, which may be true, although he was very anti-communist. Um, but he, he was somebody who always wanted to be uh, near power. He wanted to be a fixer, like the other two. He wanted to uh, be somebody in the know, uh, uh, etc. And before the war, uh, the people who, um, his clients had been powerful people, um, not all of them Nazis. Um, During the war, they happened to be Nazis because he was in Germany. And after the war, he tried to restore his reputation by going back to the uh, rich and powerful and well-connected of Europe and then had to... But doing that, uh, having been Himmler's massa, was not the best way to burnish his reputation. And so he then pretended, wrote a memoir and had other people make his case and so on, that actually he'd been a sort of resistance hero. An embedded resistance hero. Correct. (laughs) And in exchange for relieving Himmler uh, of his stomach pains, he uh, persuaded Himmler uh, not only to release people from concentration camps, uh, but to stop Himmler from deporting the entire Dutch population to Poland in 1941 or 42, which is uh, com- a completely unbelievable story. Um, but some people believed it. And he said that he'd persuaded Himmler to call off a plan to starve millions of uh, people in occupied France, Belgium and Holland. Yes, th- these are all tall tales um, that came up after the war uh, to um, make sure that uh, having been Himmler's massa would not hamper his career. Uh, do you see any parallels with people in today's news now when demagogues abroad and at home are assaulting the truth once more? I do, which is one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, because I think that in, 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 in a political atmosphere, 
where people don't only tell lies. I mean, people have always told told lies and politicians also, but where it doesn't matter anymore, where there is no such thing as truth. Um, uh, this happens under dictatorships. It happens under foreign occupation. It, it's happening even in our democracies today. And this, this, this is the perfect atmosphere for chances and self-mythologizers and self-invented uh, characters and scoundrels of all kinds to come to the fore. People who had normally been in the margins uh, suddenly can, can sort of act out roles uh, that uh, can be very malign. And I think, in a way, we've already seen that in the four years of Donald Trump, when th those kind of types uh, tended to um, uh, come up. I, I only need to mention the name Roger Stone. Hmm. Well, uh, uh, should I assume that Roger Stone will be the subject of a future book of yours? <laughs> no, not necessarily. And I'm not saying he was a murderer or is a murderer, I'm just saying he's the kind of chancer who, in normal circumstances, would never have uh, been in the news. Um, but uh, my collaborators are a little bit like that. I mean, they, they suddenly uh, can start, maybe not appear center stage, but appear on the stage of real power because of extraordinary circumstances in which truth no longer matters. Are Everything you... is propaganda. Are you saying to some degree here that um, the stories that we hear the, the, throughout history tend to be simplified and that we should really understand that things can be a lot more complicated? That is part of the, um, the purpose of writing a book like this. Yes, I, I was born in December 1951, so I had no experience of the war, but I grew up in the shadow of the war. And in a country that had been occupied, uh, there was really in the 50s and, and until the mid-60s, everything was black and white. You'd been good or you'd been bad. This um, is the Netherlands. This is the Netherlands. Yes. And it was, this was true all over Europe. And uh, we began to realize really in the 60s that it, it, it wasn't that that it's not that morally easy and uh, some bad people did good things some good thing, people did bad things some people joined the resistance out of idealism other because they were wanted adventure uh, some people collaborated uh, because they needed to protect their families and so on and so forth it's it's it, it, it's a complicated issue and i think uh, literature, and, by, and I include um, this kind of history writing um, in literature, uh, you have to look for the complications uh, and not for e easy moral uh, condemnation, which is, in my view, um, not very interesting and doesn't make us think more deeply. Well, Anne Frank's uh, diaries are what most people uh, for many years uh, thought of as what was happening during the, in the Netherlands at the time that the uh, Nazi occupation uh, was is is that just a distorted view no I don't think so at all I think Anne Frank uh, first of all I think she was a very talented writer and there's nothing distorted about the idea that uh, Jews uh, everywhere um, where uh, the Nazis uh, were in power um, were destined for, 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 for mass murder. And uh, she was one of them. So there's certainly no, uh, there's nothing distorted about her situation. Um, the people, the, what, what is perhaps more complex is that some people 
uh, tried to protect her family. Um, clearly, somebody uh, betrayed them. We're not still not sure who it was or what the reasons for the betrayal were. And that's where, you st where it starts getting murky. But the story of, of persecution and, and genocide uh, is certainly not uh, a myth or, or, or a distorted story. You argue that what connects the three subjects of your book is their outsized self-delusional fabulism. Or, uh, is that fabulism or fabulism? Uh, didn't all three describe themselves as saviors who had noble causes and, and sacred lives and saved lives? Well, that's, of course, what, uh, what self-mythologizers and um, chancers and liars and demagogues always claim. I mean, Donald Trump claims to make America great again. Uh, so that's not an unusual claim uh, for, for, for people to make who are actually sometimes doing the opposite. You're listening to... Let so it... very, by, by which I, I, I would say there are very few people who do bad things purely for the sake of malice. I mean, Shakespeare has a few characters like that. Iago, uh, Richard III, perhaps. But in real life... People rarely would admit to doing something purely for the sake of doing something, uh, for the sake of evil. They usually have some rationalization that it's for a higher cause or whatever. And, it's for, and we're the ones who decide whether it was really just evil, total evil. Yes, but I think total evil in that sense is is, is rather rare. Well, well when you, mean, you go into a school and shoot up the school and, and kill a bunch of children... Uh, yes, I mean, uh, there's no uh, I, there's no way you can possibly defend it. Um, uh, but I think, again, somebody like Hitler was an extremely rare case. Mm. You know, most of the people, including Himmler, probably had talked themselves into believing that they would do, what they were doing was good. You don't think Hitler thought that he was doing good things? But, um... I, I, I would hesitate. He must have self-justified on some level, no? He may have done. I, uh, but it, yes, it was a sort of racial idea of racial grandeur and so on, but so mixed up with, um, with personal uh, uh, resentment and rage that I would hesitate to climb into his head. And um, uh, I don't think uh, we either have the time, nor do I have the inclination to psychoanalyze him. And, of course, the people who held, who did terrible things to the slaves that they owned throughout a large part of the history of this country. Yes, but again, I don't think you can, it's difficult to generalize about a history like that. First of all, uh, the way slaves were treated in some plantations were probably worse than in others. Uh, the system was certainly something that one couldn't possibly condone. Uh, the personal, when you go into the personal behavior of individuals in history, things become a little bit more complex. You're listening to Let It Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Ian Baruma. 
If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of his book, the book we are discussing, The Collaborators' Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212 212- 209-2950, but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Lyndon Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return now to Ian Baruma. Uh, the book we're discussing is The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II from Penguin Press. Um, Mr. Baruma is a former editor of the New York Review of Books and the author or co-author of many books. He is. Uh, you're now a professor at Bard College? Uh, yes, I am. Do you uh, miss being um, r- running a, a major prestigious uh, I- publication like the New York Review of Books? Well, I miss it in that uh, I could have done interesting things with it in my own view, but uh, I don't miss it in the sense that uh, I have a great deal more time now to do my own writing, which in the end is something I prefer to do. Hmm. Uh are there other things you want to tell us about these three people or the situations that they were engaged in? Um, well, you, I think that's that's a hard question to answer because it. Well, I've it, I've it, just it, done it's, a it's, cursory glance, and <laughs> and there are some incredible details here. Uh, hmm. So let's look a, a little deeper into the story of um, Kawashima Yoshiko. Hmm. Um, what else should we know about her? Well, I'll tell you how I knew about her first. Um, uh, and this, again, is a story of deception um, uh, in the period, uh, which, which very much fits um, the book. Um, there was a, uh, the Japanese in Manchukuo, which in itself, this was Manchuria, which mm-hmm. the Japanese built up in the 1930s as a, basically as a puppet state. It was now part of North, it's now northeastern China. And everything about Manchukuo, or the, the state of Manchuria, was phony. Uh, the Japanese pretended it was independent. It wasn't. They, 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 they said it was um, uh, multiracial and, and, and based on racial equality. It wasn't, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and But it was modern in many ways. They, the, the Japanese wanted it to be a, a showcase of mod, Asian modernity. And one of the things they built was the most modern film studio in Asia. And they wanted, they made propaganda movies, Japanese mm. propaganda movies, usually with stories of a Chinese woman who fell in love with a brave Japanese soldier and that sort of thing. And they needed a Chinese actress who could play these roles, um, uh, who spoke both Chinese and Japanese fluently. And they couldn't really find anybody until they found this, this Japanese, young Japanese girl born in Manchuria in China, who was bilingual. And they gave her a Chinese stage name, and it was a state secret that she was really Japanese. So they pretended she was a Chinese actress playing in these propaganda films. And um, she became hugely popular in Japan, not so much in China. And after she knew uh, Yamaguchi Yoshiko, her name, sorry, she knew Kawashima Yoshiko. Her name was Yamaguchi Yoshiko. Hmm. And uh, she was a big star. After the war, 
she went back to Japan, changed her name from Li Kordan or Li Xianglan, which was a Chinese stage name, to Shirley Yamaguchi, hmm. and started playing Japanese geishas and so on, who fell in love with brave Jap- American soldiers in Hollywood pictures and was in The King and I on Broadway. And so she nicely switched in a sort of way that reflects in some ways the history of modern Japan. And um, I knew her uh, and interviewed her and actually wrote a novel about her. And she'd known uh, the other Yoshiko uh, intimately. And so uh, that's really how my fascination for the other character grew. Well, that's a fascinating story. She was also forgiven to some degree for what she had done during the war. Absolutely. And she became a politician for the, the ruling party. And her role was to go around Asia, shaking hands with Asian dictators like uh, um, Kim Il-sung in North Korea at the time, uh, and to apologize for what the Japanese had done during the war, to repair uh, relations uh, between Japan and the rest of Asia. That was her role. Now, we mentioned that Friedrich Weinrib was a Hasidic Jew in, in Holland. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you have known he was a Hasidic Jew? Did he dress like a Hasid and, well, and have, yes, and have because, sisters well, no, and all of that? No, no he didn't, uh, although he had a, he had a beard. Um, but I knew about him because he became a guru who, who taught usually wealthy, um, elderly, non-Jewish ladies the secrets of life. Uh, by reading the Bible in a Kabbalistic manner, and, and according to real scholars, a totally spurious manner. I knew about him because my best friend at university uh, would take Bible classes during the weekends with his grandmother. And, um, and being a stupid student, for about five minutes, I took this seriously. And I was studying classical Chinese at the time. And I remember going to class and um, asking my professor whether it wouldn't be a fruitful way to read Han Dynasty texts, classical Chinese texts, um, through, with it, through a sort of Kabbalistic lens. And I remember their eyes rolling. And I remember also going back uh, to meet my friend, and both of us um, uh, thought this was a sign of the deep superficiality of my professors. So that's how I knew about Weinreb. Um, he, he, he exercised a certain... Uh, he, he attracted these kind of uh, ladies, and he, he f- had to flee to Switzerland after the war because some of these ladies accused him again of abusing mm. them. And so he had to get Sexual out of Holland abuse. fast. Yeah. Sexual abuse. But he, so he got out of Holland fast, but his career um, uh, took off again in Switzerland where he um, died peacefully in his bed as far as I know. He said those medical exams were required for emigration. <laughs> But this was all, of course, phony. I mean, he was just exercising his own power fantasies. Now, as we mentioned earlier, he took large amounts of money from Jews in uh, an imaginary scheme to save them from deportation to concentration camps, although he betrayed some of them to German secret police. What, what about the others? Did, did uh, he just take the money and then leave them? Well, most of them in the end got caught and mm. um, ended up in the death camps. Uh, some of them claim that um, while they were on his list, uh, it allowed them to go underground into hiding, and that's why they survived the war. So he had his supporters. Uh, but what was very strange about his case is that he, he claimed that his list 
was backed by a German general called von Schumann. And um, the general was as imaginary as the list. It was a fantasy. But when he was caught by the Gestapo, um, he tried to get, uh, he, he tried to convince them that it had all been made up. And so he wasn't really guilty of anything. They wouldn't believe him because there was a great rivalry between the SS and the German army. And they wanted to believe that there, was, there had to be some, some uh, German general, army general, who was in on this scam. And then uh, asked Weinreb to help them track him down, which was a, the reason why Weinreb was released after his first arrest, which almost never happened. If you were a Jew and you were arrested by the Gestapo, you very rarely got out. He did. And so his story got more and more involved. Um, and so he ended up trying to hoodwink the Gestapo as well as uh, get, trying to hoodwink Jews to get onto his list. Um, and in, in the end, of course, uh, the game was up and people were onto him and he had to go into hiding himself. And uh, Felix Kirsten, we said earlier, uh, c claimed that he convinced Heinrich Himmler to do positive things. Do we know whether that any of that was true? Well, at the end of the war, um, Kirsten, who was a deft operator, he realized that things were not going well for Germany, so he managed to sort of relocate to Stockholm in neutral Sweden. And at the end of the war, Himmler tried to make, make a deal uh, with the Allies, that the Allies would um, put him, Himmler, at the head of Germany and um, fight the, the, the Russian the Soviet Union together. Well, he was and a Finn, wasn't for, he? Why didn't he go back to No, Finland? no, no, this is Himmler. This is oh, Himmler. No, I, I and, meant and, and, and Himmler was the head of the SS. Yeah. And uh, Himmler thought some kind of deal with the Allies could be made at the end of the war, which would let him off. And um, in exchange for that, Himmler was prepared to release some Jews from concentration camps. So these weird negotiations were going on. Kirsten, who was then in, in Stockholm, played a role as a kind of middleman. Who, mm. he, and he, one of the things he did was introduce the uh, representative in Sweden of the World Jewish Congress to Himmler. And an extraordinary meeting took place while the war was still going on in Kirsten's country house outside Berlin, where uh, the head of the Jewish Congress in Stockholm flew in um, while Berlin was still being bombed met Himmler, and Himmler uh, wanted to shake hands and said, perhaps it's time for our peoples to bury the hatchet. Um, and as a result of this, some Jews were released. Now, after the war, the Swedes claimed that they were responsible for this um, through their negotiator. It was Count Volker Bernadotti, later assassinated in Jerusalem by uh, Itchak Shamir's gang. Mm. Um, and, and Kirsten claimed that he had been responsible. Again, here it gets so murky, we'll never know exactly uh, what happened. But some kind of negotiations uh, did go on. In your epilogue, you say that their primary sins, these your three subjects, was that they conned themselves, even though other people were victims? No, of course, the victims uh, suffered uh, more than anybody else. There's no question. But I don't think you need to stress that uh, the Third Reich 
uh, was a terrible thing and, uh, and persecution of Jews um, is to be totally condemned and that the Japanese were up to no good in China. This is, that, that seems to me fairly obvious. But when you think of what these three characters have done, apart from causing a great deal of harm to people, that goes without saying. But the theme of, of, of what, what holds them together in, in my story is the story of, of deception and self-deception. And what, what I said in the end was not a way to sort of get them off the hook for what they've done. What I was say, trying to say is that uh, all of us make up our lives as we go on. We all re-edit our memories. We all tell ourselves stories about who we are and what our lives are uh, to some extent. But uh, we don't all completely deceive ourselves by making everything up. And I think that is something that these uh, three characters did. And that's, this comes from uh, an atmosphere and an attitude in which the truth no longer matters at all. And my, what I was trying to point out, that this is an extremely dangerous atmosphere to, to get ourselves in. And here, um, there is a clear illusion uh, to our own time. Allusion, not illusion, but allusion to our own time. The reviews that you have received for this book have been really wonderful, but a, a couple of people have said maybe you've been a little too kind or let, let your subjects off a little too easy. How would you respond to that? Well, there's one reviewer who said that, and, and I would respond to that by, again by repeating what I said earlier that uh, writing about characters, whether they're uh, in a play or in a novel or historical, simply to condemn them and to bang home to the reader that how bad these people are is not very interesting. It doesn't, it do, it doesn't allow you to understand human behavior any better. Uh, again, if, if, if that had been the only point of, let's say, um, Shakespeare's Richard III, it wouldn't be an interesting play. You have to, um, I think the whole point of writing about people is to uh, reach a greater understanding of what, it, what makes us tick. And I think simply expressing one's outrage is not the most effective way of doing that. I know that, that this is an unfashionable thing to say in a, in a period in which expressing moral outrage has um, become the, the kind of thing to do, but I, I resist it. So what happened to each of them? Uh, first, Kawashima Yoshiko after the war. Well, Kawashima Yoshiko was executed by the Chinese uh, nationalists, the people who, who later fled to Taiwan after um, being defeated by the communists uh, in the 1940s. Uh, so she had the worst fate. Uh, Weinreb uh, ended in, up in Switzerland, uh, escaping from Dutch justice. Um, and uh, died there. Um, the end of Kirsten is as uh, as as um, unknowable uh, as so much else in his life. Uh, there are claims that he died um, while traveling to France, where he was going to receive um, an award from François Mitterrand, the president at the time, for his brave resistance during the war, because in France, uh, this is a myth that is still very much believed. Uh, and by the way, a film is being made at the moment with Woody Harrelson as Kirsten, taking, um, um, as, it, as it's 
primary material, uh, a French biography or hagiography of Kerstin, which completely takes his myth as face value. Um, and so uh, that's one thing, one, one explanation of his death. The other one is that he died somewhere in a hotel in Hamburg. It's mm -hmm. unknown. That he died is the one thing we do know for sure. <laughs> Well, he would be very old right now if he hadn't died. He would. Even he wouldn't have been capable of doing that. In the few minutes that we have left, are there any things you want to add? I think we've pretty much covered uh, everything. I hope that the, the first half doesn't get too um, distorted by the bad connection. Well, I think we have saved the show with this better connection here. But, Very good. But I, I guess uh, the the uh, I was asking you earlier uh, whether you saw parallels with people in today's news. Uh, I, I think the real question would be: Do you think that there are similar situations in almost every conflict? I mean, right now no, in Ukraine, I think, I think in Ukraine, more... right now, for example. Uh, and in Russia, I'd imagine that there are some very complicated things going on. Uh, that's, uh, of course, true, and certainly in terms of collaboration. I mean, the, 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 there was a very good article in The New Yorker some months ago describing the situation in Ukrainian towns uh, when they're um, occupied by Russian troops. And Ukrainians, in order to keep people fed, um, cooperate with the Russians because otherwise everything collapses. And then when the Ukrainians take these towns back, they're often arrested as traitors. Now, there it gets very morally very difficult. Um, and of course, these it, it, it's, it's, it's a very complicated situation there. But I think my, my larger point would be that, that as soon as, that the more... Um, you have real debate and, the, and people listen to each other. Um, government is transparent uh, and so on. And the more people, there is some kind of consensus that truth matters, the less room there is for this kind of malign uh, fantasizing. So uh, in, 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 in a society where there is strong censorship, uh, where uh, there is oppression, or where people can no longer agree um, that there are certain criteria for what is true and what isn't true, which is more, more or less the case now in the United States, I think, even though it is still a democracy. Uh, this is when uh, fantasy can start running wild, um, boosted, of course, by uh, social media and so on, uh, which is a great threat to our democracy. I've been speaking with Ian Baruma, who was born in the Netherlands, studied Chinese at Leiden University and cinema at Nihon University in Tokyo. He's lived and worked in Tokyo, Hong Kong, London, and New York, which is quite obvious considering some of the things that uh, he told us during this conversation. He's a regular contributor to Harper's and The New Yorker writes monthly columns for Project Syndicate and Bloomberg, and is a professor at Bard College. What, what do you teach at Bard? Um, well, I, I teach different things um, uh, most years, but um, I like doing a film course, but showing films that allow us to discuss history and politics and mm. so on, uh, as well as cinema. And I also do a course on literary journalism, not to teach people how to write so much as uh, reading texts uh, beginning 
in the 18th century all the way up to Zadie Smith, which again allows the students to get some taste uh, of, of, of history and culture and uh, so on from different points of view, historical as well as personal which or political, which I think is an extremely, extremely important thing uh, to do at a time of great polarization and, and orthodoxy. The book we've been discussing is The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II, published by Penguin. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's always always a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Somebody asked me to spell my name out so that you could reach me, L-O-P-A-T-E, Leonard Lopate. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to keep this station coming to you. We are going through a really rough time, so we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. We need your help to keep bringing you this unique, in-depth content. Information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of Ian Broomer's latest book, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II. So why not make that call right now at 212 212- 209-2950 go online to give to WBAI.org and remember WBAI Pacifica is an important alternative to mainstream censorship because we address important issues that are often overlooked and give voice to important um, to, to the voiceless and, and mar- the marginalized among us and, um, and that's why we are asking you to support us also we are Offering flash drives called the Best of BAI for a pledge of $99. Uh, when you call, you can say, I want the Best of BAI shows and favorite hosts, or Best of BAI classic past historical truths, or Best of BAI current events and consequences. You might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, with a monthly contribution of $15, $20, $25, whatever you feel comfortable with. And we'll say thank you with a, a BAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, it's important to support this station. We are completely free speech radio. Um, you're uh, the only station in the New York Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. And... Your support will be tax deductible. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest will be Christina Gerhardt discussing her new book, Sea Change, an atlas of islands in a rising ocean. We'll see you then. Mm -hmm.